Now, Zan, I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to um, listen to the Biota Live just following your appearance, but Ed, who was on your show, called in and talked a little bit about his reflections, having uh, listened to you know the discussion that you uh, presented with Travis and Bruce and Ed and myself. And I think what was interesting out of that was that he had a particular interest in the ecology and the way in which artificial life can impact in these kind of areas. And this was certainly my own feeling as well. I remember when you did the Graytham talk that you put a slide up that had a kind of triangle that had artificial life and various ecological points in it, but you weren't able to actually get to it um, through that Graytham talk. In terms of just a, a background, can you talk a little bit about you know, what was in that triangle and how you feel artificial life fits together with, with the ecological movement. My interest, I should start by saying, is, is really in the, the problem-solving process. And uh, what fascinates me about artificial life is that it so beautifully um, models the way we need to combine analysis and synthesis to solve hard problems like the environmental problem. And so I think that it has a unique potential to complement traditional scientific approaches, which tend to be more observational and analytical, by offering a speculative vehicle and um, a way, well, I guess there would be three levels. The first would be to simulate, to try to build a likeness, that can be, you know, assessed and compared to the real world. Um, but then at the next level to speculate and to um, allow the builder to play out a set of hypotheses where the outcomes are unpredicted. And finally, the, the most ambitious level is to build an interactive environment where, um, you know, the model not only evolves but um, the the players interacting, and I'm saying the human, in other words, it's not just a model that you let go and see what happens, but a model that you continue to interact with, such as think, a game, right? That, that is Certainly, but I mean, I think, I, I think as, a, as an active practitioner of artificial life, what interests me is in addition, I mean, you, you talk about synthesis analysis, and what you've talked about in those three examples is a movement to more um, uh, analytic synthesis, for want of a better term. But what interests me about contemporary artificial life and uh, you know wh where we appear to be going as a movement is that actually a lot more analysis in an abstract sense, almost a, a metaphysical or, or meta-science sense, seems to come out of contemporary artificial life, certainly as these, these ideas start to, to congregate and percolate. So I think there is a non-trivial component in, in the way that you set this up in terms of the idea that through simulation as you, you know, as you move into possible, 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 eventually you get to a point where you have some uh, kind of meta-concepts which are fundamentally scientific in some regard, which is actually far greater than the combination of, you know, a small series of iterative simulations that test possible worlds, possible interactions, and possible environments. Historically, in terms of the Buckminster Fuller background and these kind of aspects of, of you know, where you've come from, can you talk about his um, interest in, in environmental, you know, and ecological movements and how that may have motivated your own understanding in this regard? Well, uh, Buckminster Fuller formulated the idea of world game back in 1961, before there was any internet, and it really it um, um, 
was in some sense a prediction because there, there, uh, it really couldn't be done without an internet. And uh, so, he, I mean, his concept of world game was that we could make the world work for 100% of humanity, um, and that that um, through in, uh, involving um, the players, namely you know, all the, the those who who participated in world game. Um, basically, world game would become a, a um, problem-solving forum in a way. And at the time that he was doing it, um, it was uh, you know simply butcher butcher paper and magic markers in gymnasia with large numbers of of participants playing. But it basically was a concept for the internet. So his idea was that um, I, he thought that, for example, um, you might take specific problems such as hunger and then you would you would say well how might we eliminate hunger in 10 years and then teams would would try to solve that problem by using less resources costing less and accomplishing more maybe more than just that at one time and there would be then several iterative rounds of problem solvers and then then the game might shift to look at energy and how might we solve the energy problem or health or education and I mean, a key um, uh, vision for World Game was that it was an educational tool. That the process of problem solving itself would help us to um, think more um, globally about our local responsibilities. Are you familiar with uh, Justin Lyons' work in this area and Simudine, his company? I'm not. Okay, so Justin has appeared on previous both lives, and he's currently um, based in Iraq, which is why he's so hard to get on both lives currently. Um, in Iraq, you said? Yes, yeah, he's, he's, um, he's kind of artificial life Indiana Jones in some regard. Um, uh-huh. But his, his background is to take a lot of these ideas and write uh, or find artificial life algorithm creators. And so Adam Arimenko out of Boston, for example, and pose these kind of problems to artificial life algorithms that are sufficiently tailored to solving these kind of problems, and then make it into quite a, a lucrative business. And the thing that fascinates me, because when Justin comes on and talks about these things in an abstract sense, as an artificial life uh, developer, my concern with regards to the world game as it applies to artificial life algorithms is the ability to find tangential and um, maybe forces that you wouldn't necessarily associate kind of a priori with regards to a specific problem. Now, artificial life simulations, funnily enough, historically, um, and here I'm thinking even of uh, Tom Ray's Tierra and Carl Sims' Blockies, have been able to find bizarre boundary conditions and manipulate them in, in quite interesting and exciting ways. And I think... In terms of, um, for example, let's say ecological, uh, the, the ecological problem as you've described it, they would probably find uh, amazing boundary conditions relatively quickly with the existing algorithms that we have. The interesting point that I always put back to Justin Lyon is that, um, for example, I mean, he used healthcare as a, as a set example. He's also used mineral mining and various other things uh, for these artificial life algorithms. But if you were to give an artificial life algorithm the problem of um, low or no income healthcare in the U.S., which is a, a point that, that Justin put out there, 
My concern is that unless you model pharmaceutical companies, unless you model the healthcare industry, unless you model Congress and the Senate, unless you model these kind of iterations from the real world, you will not be able to uh, overcome or understand some of the retarding forces which are fundamentally irrational but exist there. And in terms of, if we talk about the butcher paper example that Bucknett's to Fuller you know, put out in gymnasiums, what was your sense in terms of the ability for this being done on paper with people to solve these kind of issues? Well, so back to my the original um, chart that you mentioned from my, um, my talk last July at SRI, um, because I'd like to bring in the two other points. So uh, the, the triangle that you referred to, the top of that was uh, world gaming and really bringing Buckminster Fuller's idea of world game to, to the 21st century using the Internet and all the tools that we have now. But the two other points of that triangle were new media and geo-aware technologies, right, and the, the capacity to harness now social networks, Web 2.0, 3.0 hopefully, um, to these problems. And, and the third triangle was the green economy and uh, are now the current focus that we have on uh, socially responsible entrepreneurship and uh, my particular interest in collaborative intelligence. In other words, how you can create a, an effective distributed collaborative process, um, enable decision support for hard problems um, such as um, environmental sustainability problems. Now, World Game is still really, I think, too big for anyone to get their, their minds around. And so, I mean, the challenge that global warming simulators are, are having is, you know, there are all these simulations, but um, as Isaac Held of uh, NOAA has written, that the, the real problem is that um, you can't really, they, they aren't at present effectively stitched together. And, um, I mean, that's the ultimate sustainability challenge and the question of how can um, A-Life perhaps help with um, enabling people to work at a regional level on regional scale problems or even parceling the problems into partitioning them into smaller components than that and still being able to stitch them back together in a meaningful way. Are you familiar with Freeman Dyson's critique of computational simulation with regards to environmental modeling in particular? I'm more familiar with Freeman Dyson's work on the origin of life. Uh, <laughs> Freeman Dyson is a very broad thinker, and he's done a lot of things. He does. I mean, he's, I, if, if you were to characterize on the founding fathers of artificial life, I think his, uh, his artificial chicken and related other um, works come together. But interestingly enough, he, I, I have tracked his views with regards to large-scale environmental simulations because I think it's a, he proposes an interesting critique um, to the, what, exactly what you're saying. I think what interests me is, again, the, the stupid humans as opposed to the simulations in, in these contexts. I think the simulations can go and do uh, wonderful and amazing things. It's, it's just bringing it back to the humans and motivating chains based on that that seems to be the, the current difficulty. And I think Freeman Dyson, um, it's probably too detailed for me to go into in this podcast, but I recommend folks check out Freeman Dyson's Wikipedia link, which has quite a, an active and constantly updated um, section associated with his critique of uh, large-scale ecological simulations, particularly with regards to global warming, but also just a broader critique. My sense of the world game 
as it relates to artificial life is that rather than having thousands of people together in a gymnasium writing uh, with regards to a specific issue, you have on one level what you described, which is thousands of simulators, and these are people and also their simulations coming together to try and solve a specific issue. I mean, is this what you're describing fundamentally in terms of a gathering together of minds and simulations or moving towards a, a solution to a specific problem? Well, just picking up one thread from uh, that you mentioned earlier, um, I want to suggest that I really see World Game and James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis as, as hand in glove, that, that James Lovelock, in formulating the Gaia hypothesis, very clearly stated the problem. And, of course, he encountered huge resistance when he originally published the Gaia hypothesis in 1972, and it was A-life theorists who came in and started doing simulations. And, of course, one of the first very famous ones was Daisy World. And, of course, and Daisy World vastly oversimplifies uh, the problem in order to make some very clear and very important points, right? Um, uh, and so I see a world game as the glove that fits the Gaia hypothesis in the sense of suggesting how we as and, and I really think it's the, I don't see a separation between artificial life and the artificial intelligence folks working on multi-agent systems. I mean, I really think that these two areas need to come together more. Agreed. Uh, because the, the multi-agent systems people are coming up with approaches that, that, uh, that A-Life might apply, or an A-Life is also coming up with approaches that might apply to multi-agent systems. And, and so I think the challenge, and actually there are some um, Australians who have written an interesting critique, which I think is very apropos of the problem here. Uh, they're at Monash, and um, they've uh, written on uh, Alan Doran. Do you, do you know him? Um, I'm familiar with the, with the crew at Monash, so I believe I've probably met him at one conference or another in the late 90s. And in any case, their, their, their critique focuses on the, they've looked at a range of artificial life slash ecosystem simulation experiments and looking at many of the very famous ones, Tierra, Vida, uh, some of those uh, uh, polyworlds. Um, but their main critique is the lack of a capacity for emergence in these systems. And to me, that is the, the primary challenge. And, of course, what interests me about artificial life is its potential to, to address what is common to evolution, intelligence, and collaborative problem solving, I think, in that all of these are emergent phenomena. Certainly. But that's not easy to simulate. The traditional um, goal uh, focused model of problem solving, in other words, you know, state your problem, define your problem, state your goal, and reduce the difference between the present state and the goal state, which was the, the basis for early robotics, is um, inadequate to solve the, to address the kinds of environmental problems that we face today, where there is uh, inevitable unpredictability. And um, artificial life has the potential to, to address some of those problems and to build systems that can cope with uncertainty. Now, I think Louis Rocha at, at Indiana is doing some interesting work in that area. Certainly, certainly. But I think, I mean, emergence, even with regards to 
the blocky creatures in with regards to Carl Sims' work, but also in my own understanding of Polyworld, my own interaction with the, the Polyworld simulation, you get a wide variety of emergent behaviours out of those simulations depending on you know, what you want to consider emergence coming from. I mean, I think this is a, a problem with regards to definition in this, in this context. But more importantly, I mean, if you talk about emergence from uh, some kind of abstract simulation that is designed to solve problems, I, I would agree that this is something that artificial life needs to move towards. What's, what's your own blueprint in this regard? Because I remember looking at the slide and seeing that there was more to it than just what you've described so far. Well, first of all, I want to stay away from the word blueprint. <laughs> because blueprint suggests that I've got a solution and that it's static. And the, the whole nature of this thing is that it's dynamic and uh, emergent and unpredictable. But um, the important complementary streams of ideas, I think, are the, the folks working on bioeconomics, right, have a – and now that we're in this big Darwin year – um, the, the people thinking about bioeconomics are thinking about a uh, complementary models to the traditional Darwinist model of evolution as simply random variation and competition for survival of the fittest. And the, the bioeconomics models suggest that there are other components and that the, the very nature of life is its, um, um, its own um, behavioral performance and and its own decision-making processes, which obviously um, either lead to better survival or less effective survival, and so that that becomes a key component in the evolutionary process. I mean, leading back to what I was saying with regards to the kind of meta ideas, I think this comes through a lot of what you're saying as well, that what is coming out of artificial life now are things, not just simulations, but also a broader series of, of analytical tools. Um, they're, I guess, fundamentally described in philosophical tools, things such as what Dick Gordon has done in his book in terms of what I wrote on and in a completely different area, what Bruce wrote on. We weren't talking about our own simulation experiences. We were talking about motivating change and direction and the things that we had learned through our own experiences of artificial life. So certainly with regards to returning to the stupid humans as opposed to the beautiful simulations, I mean, I think what interests me with regards to what we were writing about in Dick's book, but also with regards to ecological concerns, is that there is a, a problem currently, and I wrote in my show notes, you know, fools rush in where Dawkins fears to tread in this regard. But I mean, the, for me anyway, when I started developing Noble Ape, um, you know, ecological simulation, the means of describing as you, as you talk about the kind of emergent ecology and how societies were intertwined with their ecological environments and how, you know, the societies that robbed from their environments early would develop in different ways and the harshness of the ecology and these kind of things would change the society versus kind of utopian society. So I think there are, and to some extent I get the impression that Larry Yeager came to it from a similar perspective and also the Framsticks guys and, you know, there seems to be an underlying ecological uh, message that comes through all these artificial life simulations both explicitly and also with regards to the underlying development philosophy and the philosophy that comes out of that. But the more I thought about it, and certainly interacting with folks like Dick Gordon and coming, you know, spending time in the US and then going to the UK and back to the US, I think there's a broader issue, which is this idea of 
kind of junk science or the movement of science into you know something which is commoditized and then distrusted and i think when we talk about for example creationism or when we talk about uh the ecological doubt movement or when we talk about all these things it's really to do with a, a pollution of science which is ultimately a kind of meta philosophical issue that you seem to be touching on you know progressively through what you're saying i mean does this ring true with what you're saying? And do you see that the you know, artificial life developers are actually creating a philosophical movement with what they're doing as well? Well, this is interesting because I don't feel that I talk about junk science. That's, that's not one of my themes. But I do talk about the um, tremendous impact of cultural lenses on how we interpret scientific theories and particularly in my book what Daedalus told Darwin I'm, I speak about the cultural lenses um, imposed on Darwin's theory and those cultural lenses went back to well uh, Adam Smith published Wealth of Nations in 1776 so that was 83 years before Darwin published Origin of Species and the, the ideas of Adam Smith were very much in the air as capitalism and industrialism were we're growing and survival of the fittest so started there as a capitalistic idea so that that was the lens then that was uh, imposed on Darwin's theory and um, Stephen Jay Gould has reinforced that point in, in saying that Darwin's theory might be viewed or our interpretation rather of Darwin's theory might be viewed as an extended analogy to wealth of nations and that in fact Gould argues that Darwinism, that, that Darwin's name was misappropriated to label Darwinism, that it, that it actually misrepresents him. Because Darwin had strong questions about, um, I mean, Darwin's dilemma was the, his dissatisfaction with calling variation simply random, and of course equal dissatisfaction with labeling it intelligent design. And so I think he was searching for a deeper um, explanation of evolution, and I think that they, there's wonderful, there's been, been been wonderful thinking about the idea of how evolution is evolving. I was really happy to see Scientific American's January article with that uh, title. So, you know, I think evolution is evolving into the future as, as a theory, and um, the question is, um, you know, what what does our interpretation of evolution um, how does that guide us in in our next steps to cre create an environmentally sustainable planet? Talking to, to Dick Gordon with regards to uh, his own struggles with regards to um, creationist movements and how they uh, perturb and you know interact with what you've described in terms of Darwin the man versus Darwinism versus Darwin the page in the textbook versus the you know, the, the man, the myth, the legend, the continuation, the future. I think what interested me talking to, to Dick about it, and we've done it on a number of uh, both lives and also through correspondence and through his book, is that the idea that the relationships that contemporary science may have with the likes of creationists or these kind of groups that want to perturb science in their own particular direction or have completely non-science views that they are trying to scientize currently is also mirrored with regards to the ecological issue. And what you find is that we are surrounded by these perturbations of science in order to describe 
powerful movements, be they financial movements, be they religious movements. I think certainly talking to folks like Dick and folks such as yourself and obviously Bruce, did we have some kind of prototype within the artificial life community with regards to testing these kind of hypotheses, which isn't just about simulation. It's actually something that's broader and more philosophical. But I think in my own understanding, it has really come to um, grouping these quantities in, in, in a like sense in terms of the, the methods of analysis and the methods of description that we have through simulation, but also these, these meta-methods. I was interested in your Gratham talk. You did a large surveying of the artificial life community before you came to your perspective. I mean, you talked to folks like uh, Mark Badeau, various other you know, formative thinkers in, in the field of artificial life. What new ideas or what changes in your thinking did they provide with regards to the ecological question specifically? Well, going back to the unique potential of, of artificial life to, um, I think, address... Um, evolution concurrently with um, addressing our our own problem-solving methods. So, so I think that artificial life is uniquely positioned to make a contribution to the number one challenge of environmental sustainability, which is coming up with effective methods for knowledge integration, for example. Uh, now, there's lots of effort in the autonomous learning agent community trying to figure out how to process and fuse decentralized data. And, uh, but the artificial life community has, um, I think, a unique contribution to, to make here to um, uh, construct systems that allow us to um, play with ideas about knowledge integration and um, um, collaborative problem solving, and, and again to focus on decision support and how diverse actors within a system, each with their own aims and objectives, can share a problem and respond to it in diverse ways. In other words, how you can set up um, systems with diverse players, with diverse utility functions, right, um, but who can um, self-organize around a problem. And so I think that, that A-Life could model some of some sample problems and begin to um, feed into our knowledge of collaborative problem solving in a really unique way. And I don't think we're very sophisticated in that domain yet. And so uh, for me, it's much more fascinating than, you know, A-Life trying to copy an ecosystem and trying to you know, provide an accurate model that is comparable to an ecosystem is the potential of a life to create um, a, a knowledge integration system. It's, it's an interesting meta problem, and I think certainly the, the kind of criticisms. I mean, there's the someone like Freeman Dyson who fundamentally created the field and then was fundamentally distrustful of the field came to it. But I mean, I think in terms of ecological simulation, we encounter the same problems that we encounter with uh, you know, simple evolution simulations as means of evangelizing. Because I mean, I think fundamentally, the problem that we have with ecological simulation is that you can present a, a beautiful, emergent, visually pleasing ecological simulation, which still won't motivate the kind of change. Now, I think your idea of the meta level where you in fact are simulating the interrelation the, the components which will lead to change is a different strike at the, the same problem and I think that may yield new and interesting results 
Well, there are practical domains that, that artificial life researchers are working on that are making very specific uh, contributions, like artificial anal- uh, A-life um, analyses of uh, traffic patterns or pedestrian uh, traffic patterns, right? That those kinds of analyses um, have require the components that could be extended to um, other kinds of ecological problems or even a-life analyses of um, optimal robotic behavior, you know, recharging battery strategies for, for robots. Um, studies like that have energy implications so, th- so that the A-life community can pick very specific problems and those problems then can be generalized to, you know, to other applications, I think. And so I'm not suggesting that A-life has to look only at the the, the you know, knowledge integration application. And, I mean, certainly when I talk about this with Justin Lyon and he gives specific examples, the criticism I've always had about it is that the economic, the economics of this need to be in, in very tight uh, conditions. And up until now, there's been a certain degree of economic slack with regards to a lot of these industries and certainly their reception to these kind of... Uh, artificial life simulation optimizations as you're describing. But I think the current economic situation actually almost facilitates the the benefit of these kind of simulations. So we may be at a relatively unique time where artificial life simulation can make a a dramatic and definite impact on the bottom line. As folks are listening to this, I mean, you've spoken to Ed, you've spoken to people that are in very applied areas associated with artificial life simulation, how would you motivate these people into tuning their algorithms specifically for these kind of problems? Tuning their algorithms specifically for these kind of problems. Now, I'm not sure that that's my domain of expertise. I would, I would rather speak about particular problems that they might look at. Um, for example, sensor networks. And um, uh, how do you make sensor networks uh, more um, cooperative and perhaps energy conserving? Right. Um, how, how do you make sensor networks adaptable? Practical problem like um, supply chain management. How I, I think the A-Life community could look at look at a problem like that and explore how to make um, that a, a particular supply chain system more um, economically uh, efficient. And these are all multi-stakeholder environmental problems that, that A-Life is very suited to address. So I guess this leads into the idea of what what areas do you see the artificial life community currently lacking that needs primary research before these things can even be developed? I mean, you've done a relatively broad surveying, perhaps not specifically with regards to the ecological environmental issues that we've discussed this evening, but what's, what's your sense about what's currently lacking from the artificial life simulator's toolkit in this regard? Well, I, w- I would like to see artificial life tackling more more problems that um, I, I think moving in the world game, coming full circle here to the, the your idea of, of the importance of Bucky Fuller's world game concept and the the relevance of that concept for for the artificial life community. Um, I would love to see that partitioned into something where you could take many, many small components and start to create 
A-Life models of components, but with an idea that those components would then fit back together. I think that Bruce Damer is um, working on something analogous with his evil grid idea. In other words, creating a um, uh, an empty construct, if you will, or a framework within which many different subsystems can pl- plug and play. And um, so what's, what's needed is to start to think about frameworks like that um, that can allow many different players to input their pieces and start to hook their pieces to each other. And I mean, an interesting question that has come up only this week with regards to, to Steve Grant specifically, do you see that artificial life developers will need to get political with regards to their simulations as well? Do you think it forces a, a degree of almost political activism in terms of the simulations and the simulators, or do you think that they can remain independent from this and just provide a kind of you know analytical result stream as opposed to actually basing anything on that stream? Well, I think that's your area of expertise, Tom, the, the whole political action of, of A-Life. But, but I think that the gaming opportunity for artificial life is just huge. And um, Spore hasn't, hasn't really um, tackled the great opportunity there. I mean, the great opportunity is not to pre-design the system, but to... And, and to create um, a, a system that really allows the, the players, the, the human players who enter the system to play in a very meaningful way. Um, and, and so I would love to see a, a game start to be developed in, you know, in many, many, many different pieces with many different um, creative, may, and maybe you, Tom, are the person to figure out what the the format would be when using Biota Live, perhaps as a as a vehicle for that, to um, enable many different A Life designers to think about how they could contribute to a world game that would be a a game with real and significant implications. In other words, where the, the data input and, and the, the system developed is not just a um, uh, system for amusement, but a system that allows us to, to think about these problems. There's been an attempt, you know, the U.S. Geological Survey is very concerned about the earthquakes that were predicted for the next 30 years, uh, both in the Bay Area and in Los Angeles. And... Um, um, they wanted to develop a game and got the um, um, California Academy of the Arts to work with them on that, but it would have been nice if they'd had some artificial life um, uh, expertise into that process. In terms of future projects, the things that interest me this year are obviously things like the Evo Grid. We did this in discussion last year with regards to the game SDK, which links into that. I have been recently inspired with Second Life, and I think there are interface components with that uh, that could lend themselves to at least a visual framework for this kind of game. But I think really my strengths come from the community rather than me as an individual. I mean, maybe I'm a rebel rouser and a bomb thrower rather than a, a builder in this regard. So, I mean, really, I think people such as yourself need to come on by live on a semi-regular basis to continue to instigate this. You could talk to Bruce 
specifically about his own motivation with the Evo grid and how uh, the feedback that he's gotten through appearing through Bias Live and attending Grey Thumbs the world over has really maintained his own energy uh, with regards to the Evo grid project. I want to throw out a question for you along these lines. You said you're heading back to Australia, and I think that Australia is in a kind of a unique position because it is smaller as a country. It has unique flora and fauna. It has a, uh, a rather unique community in the artificial life area and actually possibly proportionally more artificial life theorists um, interested in ecosystem modeling. Uh, do you have plans to interview some of those people for Biota Live while you're back there? This is disclosure to the Biota Live community as well. I haven't talked about my trip back to Australia, but I haven't been back to Australia for a decade. I'm going back for two weeks. And my plans initially were to see uh, aging family members and long-term friends who I hadn't seen for a long period of time. Part of that is collecting together an oral history of noble ape because there are people in Australia who I don't have primary communication with that were part of the, the early noble ape community. And I had thought about, um, for example, my hometown of Canberra, Australia, has an artificial life team that has grown up indigenously, quite independent of my own instigations uh, a decade prior. I have thought about going and seeing artificial life developers uh, and interviewing them for biota, but unfortunately my time constraints are just so tight that it may be difficult for me to even catch up with uh, you know, half a dozen friends as well as family members while I'm back there. I do agree with you in large part that Australia is in a relatively unique position on a number of levels. I don't know, I think you're probably right that per capita there are more artificial life developers in Australia than anywhere else. What I found living in the UK was per capita in the UK there were more artificial life savvy muses, philosophers and enthusiasts in the UK than I found in Australia. I certainly found a lot more like-minded folk in, in the UK and a large part of that is due to Steve Grand. I mean, I think Steve Grand, if you're talking about someone for, I guess, what, 15 to 20 years has been talking about artificial life in the UK press on a perennial basis. I mean, he is someone who has primed the UK community for artificial life ideas and unfortunately, Australia doesn't have the equivalent of Steve Grant. I want to throw out something in the form of a question because I, I uh, don't know the answer to this. But I have, uh, you know that I lived in Australia for half a dozen years. And, and um, uh, during the period I was there, I had entered the international competition out of Japan looking for ideas for information cities of the 21st century. And it, uh, little did I know at the time I won the award of the mayor of Kawasaki in that competition, which uh, following that competition, as I said, I didn't know at the time, but it became the precursor for uh, a proposal from the Japanese government to the Australian government to build a city of the future in Australia, which started up in 1989 and closed down really a supreme failure in um, uh, the mid-90s. Um, and so nothing ever came of that. But some of the people I worked with while, while I was over in Australia, and they knew that I really championed up a, a championed a bottom-up approach rather than the kind of government-to-government, top-down approach that was going on. There is a revival now in Australia of um, really exploring these ideas. So I'm now working with Australia's Center of Excellence, uh, NICTA, um, which is initiating a smart cities as sustainable ecosystems program 
and um, uh, there's no uh, specific connection to artificial life at all. But as I was looking at some of this work in Australia on artificial life, I thought, well, you know, there's there's some very interesting work going on thinking about uh, ecosystem modeling, and I wonder if some of those people might have ideas that would be relevant to to thinking about, of course, smart cities. That's a huge multi-agent system modeling challenge, and again, a challenge that needs, it's not the world game, but even a city itself needs to be partitioned into smaller problems. And they're looking at traffic issues. Art, artificial life has contributed, contributed quite a lot in the, the traffic domain. So i just throwing that out to you to maybe think about, and not necessarily in your two weeks while you're in Australia, but I think with your strong connections to Australia and to the artificial life community in general, um, something might emerge out of that. And certainly I want to acknowledge Gerald de Jong's work here with an architecture firm in the Netherlands as well. I mean, I think artificial life-inspired buildings are part of the ecological city concept. I mean, I think the stuff that Gerald has been able to do even a relatively short period of time to show an architecture firm how you can grow ecological buildings out of his uh, tentegrity structures, fundamentally Buckminster Fuller inspired as well. You know, I think there are a number of components the world over. I do agree with you that there are uh, particular, and I'm, I mean, my sense is that there is an element of tenacity that just comes through developing any kind of technology in Australia, um, which probably lends itself to, uh, to, to these kind of folk being, um, you know, particularly good in their particular areas. But I think certainly uh, if there are folks in Australia who would like to uh, collaborate with this kind of effort. I mean, contact me, Tom, at noble8.com or get in contact with uh, Zan directly through her website. And, and in fact, Smart Buildings is part of what they're looking at in this program because obviously they are a component of Smart Cities. Well, Zan, we've gone over time. It's been wonderful talking with you and I think you've probably provided a number of uh, points for future bio-to-live discussions. Just before um, we concluded, however, your two books, how do folks get copies of them? Well, they'll have to wait for a couple of months, but uh, my website is zangill.com, and you'll be able to click through from there to um, purchase a book or go to Amazon, obviously. And for artificial life folk, is there one in particular you'd recommend over the other? Um, well, the um, If Microbes Begat Mind, uh, from Origins of Life to Emergence of Intelligence, uh, really focuses on the origin of life. And uh, I, it, this was originally a single book project, which I uh, became too big. Um, uh, unlike Richard Gordon, I decided it shouldn't be one book, that it should be split into two. The other one is the one that focuses on evolution, what Daedalus told Darwin. So depends on your interest. The, the second one, what Daedalus dar told Darwin, is the one with more artificial life discussion. Certainly. And I think a lot of, a lot of artificial life developers self-reflection as well from our last discussion, too. It's been fun to be on with you tonight. It's always fun, Zan. Look, don't be a stranger. Please come back in a shorter period of time than three months, and hopefully we'll have other folk on to talk about this or one of the other uh, issues. Maybe uh, when your books come out, you could come back on to talk a little bit more about them. Terrific. Thank you so much. Not a problem, Zan. So two weeks' time, Friday, 6th of February, 8 p.m. Pacific, Mark Bedeau will be on. I hope Chris Dan will have the chance to call in as well. I'm not sure if he'll be in the 
UK, uh, but certainly we're wonderful having Mark on to talk about some of the issues that we discussed with Larry Yeager, in particular the ideas of teaching artificial life, but also his new book, Proho Cells, and how we can bring wet, soft, and hard artificial life developers together. Thank you all very much for listening in, and thanks again to Zan for a wonderful discussion this evening.